0: Good morning, and happy Boxing Day to our Canadian friends. My name is Ryan Mayo. My work here is in college ministry and in adult education. So as we come to the scriptures today, I'd like to pray a prayer from John Knox. Let's pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we submit ourselves and fall down before your perfection. Admitting our need and asking that this seed of your word, now sown in us, may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution will cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life will choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold, as your wisdom appoints. Amen. Well, we are in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 11. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while while, lower than the angels. He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. We say the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now we're starting in an odd place. Uh, We are picking up at the end of a very long argument about angels. The bulk of chapter one is a sustained defense that Jesus is greater than the angels. It's like a biblical catalog of created things. God, angels, humanity, and the rest of creation. And in the middle of that argument is a side argument that humanity is actually more special and more prized by God than the angels because angels are meant to serve those who are being saved, not the other way around. So we are joining this argument uh, a, a bit late in verse five with one of the proofs. And if you are reading this for the first time ever, you might not guess that after about 20 verses that make up an encyclopedia of angelology that you'd be thrust into a beautiful and profound summary of humanity across the ages, but that's what we get. We get a sort of cosmic state of the union address that details our past, our present, and our future in a tidy yet wonderful six verses, and it's fitting For a body of believers beginning a new year together, who asked the question, How do the people of God begin a new year together, especially after a series of difficult years? The author of Hebrews is going to do that for us through some theological time travel. He's going to begin in the future and then move to the past and then end in the present. He will tell us in six verses. What redeemed humanity will become, what man should have been, what man actually has become, and then finally, the remarkable actions of Jesus to bring us into the family of God. So here we go. Verse 5. He begins in the future what will man do? Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. See, some Christians in the first century believed that angels would rule in the new heavens and the new earth. And the author of Hebrews is going to correct this for us. The world to come will not be given to angels to rule, but to man. The same authority that was given to man in Eden will also be given to him in the new heavens and the new earth. We will, again, co-reign and co-rule with God over his new creation. There's plenty of New Testament support for this. In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, God talks about us as those who conquer by faith. For the one who conquers will sit with God on his throne, exercising authority. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says that if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. And in a very weird way, Paul reinforces this with a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 6 when he asks, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, his context is this how to handle disputes between believers. But his point is profound. He says, If we're going to judge and exercise authority over angels in glory, Shouldn't we be able to handle human squabbles? So the question is, why? Why choose man for this role? Why not turn over the future kingdom to the angels? After all, they seem to be good at their jobs when they're not trying to mutiny. And for the answer, Hebrews turns us to the past. What man should have been. Starting in verse 6, he quotes Psalm 8, where David wonders at the value of man. Man is made a little lower than the angels, yet he is crowned with glory and honor, and God has put everything in subjection under his feet. So put simply, man will have dominion over the world to come because this has always been God's design, to give humanity dominion over all created things. See, man was created as a vice-regent, one who exercises shared authority and agency with God the King. Hence, we see God inviting man to name the animals. We see God, when he rests his kingly rest on the Sabbath, he invites man also into that rest. We see man share in the creative and flourishing work that God began as he is instructed to till and to keep Eden. And his proof of this shared agency is that he is stamped with the royal image, like a family crest. See, the primary reason that angels are not given dominion is that they were not created in the image of God. Angels are a special kind of creature, powerful and majestic for sure, but they are not images of God. Man alone is given this image, and this image is the invitation to co-reign with the king. And that doesn't mean that we do whatever we want. With this image comes a great responsibility to put all things in proper subjection, to man and to God. This subjection has a precise shape and character to orient God's world to God's righteousness. One theologian puts it like this, the divine purpose in creation was that man should lead the entire universe in offering to the creator a worship in which all creation would find its true fulfillment and know peace. See, as the jewel of creation, man is to lead everything in praise. And as humanity performs this role, all creation would flourish in order, peace, and praise. So now, just in just a few verses, we've seen a wonderful future and a wonderful past for humanity. But what about the present? What has man actually become? Verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And this is an understatement. See, this dominion we were given has become corrupted and warped and put out of balance. We are still carrying out our functions of leadership But we're doing it under a curse. Instead of worshiping the Creator, we worship created things, including ourselves. Instead of leading those things into order, we lead them into chaos. We exploit and we dominate. Instead of cultivating and flourishing, we do violence to each other and to the world itself. And the result, according to Paul, is that not only do we groan, but all of creation groans for us to be set right. And if not resolved, verse 8 leaves us ashamed and in despair. We messed up our charter and sin is increasing. The world and its people are not oriented toward worship. The things we make are not helping us to be more obedient, and we are being mastered by those things we are supposed to lead. We ought to be cast out. Remember that when angels became corrupted and fallen, they were condemned. There is no mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost angels. There is no story of Jesus taking on angel flesh To redeem them. What should happen to us? We ought to receive the same judgment and separation that will be applied to those fallen angels, to wallow in our guilt in this life and then to be cast into outer darkness. But we see him in verse 9. And there it is, there's the gospel. All is lost, and then we see Jesus. What's he going to do? Well, everything, but in our text, four things. First thing, in verse nine, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see Jesus take on our flesh to identify with humanity. We just celebrated Krishnas, so this should be fresh in our minds. We see Jesus who receives circumcision. Why? To identify with us and to be associated with his people. He receives baptism. Why? To identify with us and to be associated with his people. Second thing, also in verse 9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. See, Jesus obeys in all the ways that Adam didn't and all the ways that Adam's descendants didn't. But Jesus goes farther than obeying in his life. In verse 9, he obeys even in tasting death. So Jesus is without sin. He's already morally perfect, but the author of Hebrews wants to convince us that he is functionally perfect. As a sin bearer, The author of Hebrews won't call Jesus perfect until he has resisted temptation even to this point of death. Can he endure a violent death? Can he endure an unjust death? Can he endure bearing the sins of his people? Can he endure all this while the Father forsakes him? Can he descend into death and into hell? places incompatible with his nature. If yes, then Jesus rightfully receives all the glory and honor, not only from his Father, but from every creature in every language forever. The third thing in verse 10, we see Jesus bringing many sons to glory. I think this is a remembrance of a a special breastplate in Exodus 28. This chapter describes a special vest that Israel's high priest would wear in the tabernacle. Sewed into this vest are 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. We can pick up in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And then in verse 30, Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Like Jesus later, this is identification with the people. This is sharing their status before God. While Aaron wears this piece with these stones, he functions as all the people. When he enters the tent of meeting, all of Israel meets with God. In Aaron's confession, all of Israel confesses. And most importantly, when Aaron makes sacrifices for their sins and then returns from the tabernacle alive... All of God's people live. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He bears the names of many sons, including me and you, presenting us to God. But he goes beyond merely carrying our names and presenting us. Jesus was actually effective in bringing these sons all the way to glory. See, he presents our names and then makes atonement for our sins, releasing us from the guilt and making sure we are not condemned. The word in verse 10 is translated founder, like the founder of a new city. But it also has the connotation of a pioneer or a trailblazer. See, through his death and resurrection, Jesus sets the rope out of our pit. He shows us the way and then he carries us out. Or as an ancient commentator puts it, Jesus runs a line from our sinking ship to the shore as our forerunner and then helps us across to safety. And not just these sons of Israel, but new sons and daughters as well. And finally, in verse 11, we see Jesus not ashamed to call us brothers. He brings us to glory with joy, not begrudgingly. It is remarkable that Jesus does not complain about us. He doesn't say, I was glad to save this section, but these rows probably aren't going to be worth the trouble. And that is a puzzler. (laughs) I don't know how he doesn't complain about us. There are some answers, one from our text and one from our human experience. In the text, it's because God the Father has called and appointed us as sons and daughters in his house. He says this in verse 11. He who sanctifies, this is Jesus, the man, and those who are being sanctified, us, all have one source, God the Father. See, Jesus is God's Son by nature, but we get to be his brothers by grace. Jesus is thrilled to fill his Father's house with us as siblings, and he delights in doing this for us. We might experience this, though, as a great mystery, because we know what we're like. How can he be happy with us, unashamed to bring us to his Father's house? And partially, it's because we're not finished yet. We will be perfectly glorious in glory. We will be perfectly matched to this house of many rooms. But mostly it's because he set his love on us, and this is the mystery of salvation. And those who have been dead in their sins will always wonder why they have been made alive. Even though it's a mystery, it ought to change us. Probably in more ways than we can count, but at least these three. First, assurance. It strengthens our assurance in this life. We are sons and daughters, spiritual siblings of Jesus Christ, and we belong in his household. We will be brought to glory, sanctified, perfect, complete, and fit for his kingdom. He will carry to completion the work that he began in you. Second, the mystery of salvation ought to spur us on In this very specific way. If Jesus is unashamed to call us siblings and to present us to the Father as family, then we must extend the same courtesy to each other. It is frighteningly easy to sort ourselves in the same ways that the world sorts itself, by wealth, ethnicity, political views, or any other number of groupings and hierarchies, we often apply the same rankings and value systems of the world onto our spiritual family. But the founder of our salvation does not do that. He won't do that. He shows no partiality, and we dishonor his household when we do it. And finally, joy. It has been a string of tough seasons for so many of us. And we are all struggling for joy. Rest and take joy in this truth that Jesus is not ashamed of you. On your worst day of the worst year of your life, when you do that thing again or say that thing again or think that thing again, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He was delighted to take on a human nature for you. His delight for you persisted through suffering to the point of death. He is delighted to sanctify you over all the seasons of your life in order to prepare you for eternal life in his Father's house. He will be delighted to bring you to glory. He will be delighted to present you as his brother or his sister without any disclaimers or embarrassment or shame. And somehow, he will also be delighted To put the new creation in subjection to you and somehow to me. And this is why we say so often thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that the gift of life has been given to so many who were dead in sin. Strengthen us for the work of your kingdom as we leave this place. Cheer the faint-hearted, heal the sick, comfort the lonely. Feed the poor with your daily bread and send us to deliver it. Keep us safe from the evil one and preserve our hearts from hardening. While we watch for your kingdom to come in fullness. Then, in your timing, bring us to glory. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.